Today we have with us David French, a CPA specializing in corporate tax preparation and planning. Thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thanks for having me, Mark. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking about uh, the CPA's perspective on mergers and acquisitions. So why don't we jump right into it? How do you prepare a client for an acquisition? So it kind of depends on the time that they come and talk talk to you about it. But, you know, hopefully you're a couple years out when you first hear about it. Never really works out that way. <clears throat> but, you know, because there's certain things you want to you want to make yourself look as good as possible on paper. So you're going to you're going to do different things in those two years up to, you know, negotiations. Um, you know, you want to keep those multiples as high as you can. You want to drive revenue, even if it's things that normally you wouldn't take on you're going to take them on um, just to kind of beef up the numbers. So, And buyers know that too. So they'll dig into the, you know, the revenue stream a little bit um, deeper. But I mean, you want to get those numbers up. Number one, you want to clean up your act a little bit in advance of, you know, the due diligence process. Um, you want to look at filing repo- um, requirements, states, different sales taxes, those kind of things. So, you know, you just got to, you got to run through the list. It's almost like you work backwards mm-hmm. from a due diligence um, checklist and you kind of, you know, you start there. Where are we at on this? What questions would we have trouble answering uh, when it came down to the table? And what can we do differently in the, you know, time between? So, I love that. So how, talk to me about how, what are some of the different ways that you can determine a company's value and, and um, when are they typically applied? Depends on the industry. Um, you know, services probably more based off revenue, a multiple of revenue um, versus, you know, manufacturing, uh, you know, tech companies, you're probably looking more at the EBITDA numbers and using a multiple. But a lot of times you need to look at the balance sheet perspective too. You know, what what do you have um, on paper? You know, what if you have a like, you know, equipment heavy, um, you know, like a big manufacturer, trucks, plant, property equipment, it, there's a few million bucks there. You're not just going to value that the same as a company that, you know, is leasing a bunch of equipment. So you really, you have to put your hat on. You have to look at it from both both uh, perspectives. And a lot of times people will just use straight multiples, but it's really not that, it's not that simple. So you got to dig into it. Mm-hmm. And do multiples typically change throughout year based on market? How, do, how does that affect the value of the company? Uh, you mean as far as uh, w- what they're using for a different company in the same industry? Yeah, yeah. I think it's just more of track record and name mm-hmm. for which end of the range you're on for the multiple um, and how, you know, who's trying to sell or who's trying to buy, you know, obviously it's all, it's all based on uh, who's hot to make the deal happen. Um, but it, it's, I would say more of um, reputation of the, of the business inside that industry. And, um, you know, you got to look at the people inside there too. Um, the people are the people and the clients, the employees and the clients. Um, that's that's the value of any business these days. So, yeah. so uh, digging into those, and it, that's a hard that's a hard thing to really see from an outside perspective. But um, when you kind of see it, I would say that increases the multiple. Um, you know, a younger a younger workforce versus an older workforce. I look at those kind of things. Um, new ideas, new industries that they're getting in. Um, I definitely bump up the number on that for the multiple. Yeah. Yeah. And there's typically two, a couple ways of structuring deals, right? There's asset sales and stock sales. Yeah. Asset s- sale versus stock sale. I think every owner should understand that yeah. from a tax perspective. Um, you know, a lot of times it could be almost the same uh, if it's mostly goodwill. I mean, you're looking at capital gains anyway, but it's going to be a lot different on the, you know, the acquirer, whether you're writing things off now, either, you know, over right away or over 15 years goodwill 
or you just have an investment in subsidiary that's sitting there, no tax attribute, no deduction for a long time. So it definitely has a big a big difference to the to the buyer, and sometimes depending on the industry, um, little or you know a big effect. So so basically, what the asset sale is is you're breaking down you know you're breaking down all the assets of the company. So typically. 80% plus is goodwill in most deals, I, I would say, just from what I've seen. Um, and you have no basis in your goodwill. It's all, you know, unless you purchased it, but for the most part, it's all formed. It's all it's all built over time, sweat equity, you know, man hours. Your basis is zero. So whatever you're selling the goodwill for, that's capital gain right there. Um, you know, you're going to pay probably 20% um, most of these deals. You know, your, your capital gains rates can either be 0, 15, or 20. Um, you'd be lucky if you get 0, but <laughs> you're not getting that unless, you know, it's a, it's small potatoes. Um, there's a 3.8% tax um, hit also that people need to see, the net investment income tax. Uh, that comes into play with these C-Corps. Um, if you're a partnership or S-Corp or even a sole proprietorship, there's there's a way out of that 3.8% with the, the active participation. Uh, I've seen that missed a lot, honestly, um, on deals with a CPA who just kind of let it roll on the Form 8960, and you know you're paying 3.8 percent extra on the sale. So um, that's one thing. Definitely make sure um, if you have an old school CPA, maybe he's been around for a long time, <laughs> not up on it. Um, I could see that being missed because that's a new form that's been out uh, only you know three or four years. So uh, that's one. And then also one thing I wanted to mention is depreciation schedules. So like there's a thing called depreciation recapture. Let's say we sold, all right, we said 80% on Goodwill, 20% to furniture fixtures and um, the breakouts. Okay. Basically we're selling our furniture fixtures a million bucks. Our balance sheet has 2 million of fixed assets that we've purchased. We've depreciated them all. So we're down to zero again, right? <clears throat> million bucks a gain, right? You're going to have depreciation recapture on all of it because the depreciation that you've t that you've taken is two million. So you're going to pay ordinary rates up to thirty seven percent. Let's say a lot of that stuff's old. You're not even using it anymore, but it's been on the it's been on the balance sheet. Nobody takes it off. Um, let's say we really look at it, and one and a half million of this is old stuff. We're not even using it. It's not part of the sale. So you're left with five hundred grand of assets. 500 grand depreciation. The recapture is capped at that depreciation. So you're paying ordinary income tax on 500 grand now, capital gains 500. So you're shifting 17% tax on 500 grand. So that's one thing. It's just simple. Everybody can do it. It doesn't come into play all the time, but with those um, companies with a lot of equipment and stuff, you got to look at that stuff. Got it. Got it. Um, we hear a lot of deals get uh, are subject to something called an earnout. Can you explain kind of what that is and, and uh, some of the tax consequences that result from that? Yeah, so the earnout, um, and this goes back to kind of beefing up those numbers up to the couple of years beforehand. They want to make sure that that revenue number is good. Um, so, all right, we'll give you fifty percent cash. The rest is going to be based on this formula, right? So, the tax. Um, the way it's structured as a tax um, item is you need to report the sale based on the maximum earnout it could be. So it kind of leads to you picking up gain before um, really earlier. Mm. So that's one thing. It's really not fair 
the way it is, but it is what it is. Um, so be careful with that. Make sure you understand that. And one thing I'd say for anybody who is getting ready for a sale in the middle of a sale, you need to know what your net take home after tax is. Like there should be a tax projection that your CPA puts together for you during this process that you know exactly what's the breakout, ordinary income, capital gains, what's the tax number? Because there's so much, it's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to pay 20% on this, or I'm going to pay 25%. But it never works out as an even number. It's like, you really need to dig into it a little bit because once the deal's signed and it's done, there's not much we can do. We have to be involved during, during the process because a lot of times these lawyers, these investment bankers, they just want to get the deal done, boom, get paid and signed. You know, the taxes are the taxes. They're going to they're gonna do what they're going to do. But you really got to pull in your CPA. And it's, it's, the, it's your job as the taxpayer, as the, um, the party to the, to the contract, to pull your CPA into these deals. Yeah. Um, so just it's worth the time. It's like we're not, we're not charging what the lawyers are charging. We're maybe like half of that. So, and we don't need to spend that many hours on it. It's like even if you get you know, a half a day or a day of your CPA's time um, during these deals, it's definitely going to be worth it. Um, it's good. You're going to get the return on it. Um, and even it might need, it might lead to negotiations. It might just kick back, um, kick back the deal in a different way that makes no difference to the other party. But, um, you know, once it's signed, there's not much you can do. When should a seller bring in a CPA? Um, it kind of depends. Um, but the earlier, the better is the <laughs> answer. Um, definitely two years before would be great. Nobody does that. Um, but the earlier the better is really the answer. Actually, on our on one of our last uh, guests on the show, uh, Sam Goodner, uh, built up a 450-person IT services company, and he uh, started structuring his company for sale five years in advance. Yeah, that's yeah. that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not like, common. No, but it's incredible. It was incredible. No, I like that. Um, yeah. Even if it's a year before, great. Um, but. So sometimes you can't time it up perfectly. Yeah. But um, I think even going back to just like your relationship with your CPA is like you need to sit down with him or her once or twice a year just to kind of get the scoop, get the, get the rundown. It's not like once a year, do the return, see you later. Like especially when you're building something, you know, that's going to be purchased or that you believe is going to be purchased. It's like you got to have a grand, grand scheme on everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and the CPA is like – to me, I think it's your most important person. It's your first stop on anything, um, really. I might be biased, but that, that's what <laughs> I think. What are some of the documents that CPAs will help uh, prepare during the due diligence process? So during the due diligence, it's more of getting on the phone call with the other the other side and getting peppered with questions. That some of them are internal questions about you know the stream of the income, the you know personnel, but and, but I mean, for us, it's more on what elections are you making? Do you have, you know, this S-Corp election on file? Oh, why didn't the wife sign it? There was community property. Oh, you're not doing sales tax, but you have um, you have sales in that state. Do you have nexus, this, that, the other? I mean, I think for them, it's really just to, just to kind of uh, just throw out there that there are some contingent liabilities out there and kind of... Um, for me, it, it's more of a negotiating tool. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, it's just to make sure, um, you know, uh, okay, there are some things out there that uh, 
you know, may not be buttoned up. There may be a gray area on a few things. Um, so, and you want as little of that as possible. That's why it's like that talking to your CPA two years before um, that happens and working backwards from that, that list is kind of a good, a good start. And the, I don't know answer doesn't work well on those phone calls, those conference calls. Um, so, yeah. Do you have any stories of, of maybe where uh, a client wasn't set up correctly and, and wasn't prepared for the due diligence process of an M&A? Yeah, I definitely have one um, where they were not set up correctly. It was an old school Texas family owned a bunch of gas stations um, around the state and they were a C-Corp and um, it was an asset sale. So C-Corps, as we know, have you know two forms of taxation. You're going to pay the corporate rate and then you got to get the money out and pay the dividend rate. And this was back when we weren't at a 21% flat uh, corporate tax rate. So these guys paid 35% on the sale of the assets then, and there's no capital gains rates in C-Corps, so um, 35% there, then you have to get the money out, and that's 23.8%. So by the time they're walking away, um, they're paying over 50% taxes, and that's not even state taxes. So it's just, you know, you need to you need to have a vision, and you need to have an idea. And in that one, we were, we were not pulled into the deal early enough. So in that, there's no way we're doing an asset sale. Like, no way. And once it's signed and, and you're done, you're not going back to to the table. I mean, there's ways to get back there, but, um, you know, once it's signed, pretty much it's a done deal. So that's one thing. Um, if you had been brought in earlier, what could have been done differently? I mean, there's no way I would have done an asset sale. Got it. It would have had to be a stock sale no matter what. Even just get creative and, and work around it. And th- that's the thing with these uh, M&A deals and reorgs. There's so much... Uh, th- th- there's so much room for um, creativity, hmm. honestly, depending on the different structures of the two parties and bringing in holding companies and, and just moving things around, uh, making elections. There's there's a re- there's a lot of flexibility if you understand it from both angles. Um, then you can you can put your head together and, and come up with something. It's not going to be right off the bat. It might take a little while to kind of go back to the drawing board and, and get it together, but um, nine times out of ten, you're going to come up with a deal that works. If they had structured it as a stock sale, what would have been the outcome? I mean, we're talking about just paying capital capital gain rates, you know, so basically half of the tax. Wow. Yeah, big numbers too, so a lot's left on the table in that, in that one. It would have been different from the... Um, you know, the acquirer's standpoint, but still overall, the tax would have been a lot less. So um, it's those things that some of the, some of the time the tax, tax stuff just doesn't get brought up, it, you know, by the lawyers. It just, for some reason, it slips through. And sometimes people aren't worried about that. They just want to get the deal. They want to get the money. They, they, they hear a number and it's what's the fastest way to get that number in my bank account. And what's your advice to people who tell you that? Just slow your roll, chill out. If you're sitting at the table with them, you know, they want to make a deal happen. Don't rush it, um, which is easier said than done. But um, talk to the professionals. Um, let them handle it. That's the, always the biggest thing. And I mean, a lot of these guys that are selling companies, um, you know, they've built something. They want to be involved in it. They, you know, they, it's theirs. But you have to you have to let some things go. You're not a better tax strategist than your CPA. 
you're not a better negotiator than your attorney. You may think you are, but you're not. You built a different business. You're better. You're smarter in that way, but you gotta you gotta be hands off with some of that stuff. When when you do come into a deal, um, how much time does it typically take to evaluate? You know, kind of the best strategy to to take, whether it's an asset sale or a stock sale or some of these other strategies. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's not that much work. Um, it's eight hours would be a full day of work would be a lot way more than most deals it's not going to be that much work Hmm. Um, so you're not running up a big bill with your cpa that's what i'm saying it's even if it's a few grand that you're that you're paying and i would also say if you don't get a good feel from your current cpa on it you're not getting much uh, in the way of you know creativity you can always bring somebody else and they don't need to be your new cpa but they can kind of take a bird's eye view at it and bring some things up Um, that would be the time to no matter even if you love your cpa it's just they don't need to know you know (laughs) just send everything over all right what's your scoop um you know a couple hours take a look at the deal and you know what's your input if you know if you're not getting much from your current guy on it i'd say um it's too big of it's too big of a life uh event to not to not bring as many people in as possible on it Mm -hmm. um so there's different types of acquisitions like where an acquirer buys an entire company or sometimes they'll buy just a piece of a company Mm -hmm. kind of what's your experience with when an acquirer just wants to buy you know maybe just a portion of a of a target's company yeah i mean it's always it's always tricky um it'd be nice if you knew about that coming up you know and you kind of prepared for it you had your financials broken out for that specific branch of your company but um it's tough it does bring in some issues uh, as far as breaking it out and you want to make it as clean as possible um, contracts liabilities you know even when you're breaking out the financials well there's some overhead that you have in your company that's not specific to one one of your lines and you know how you get to allocate that so um, definitely do your best to have standalone financials beforehand or um, come up with a method that's going to work um, and, and kind of bounce it off, bounce it off your finance team. Talked about stock versus asset sale, but are there many, maybe other alternatives beyond those those two that people should think about? Yeah. So um, obviously, the tax treatment asset versus stock sale is one thing to look at, but also the liabilities and contracts are a reason why people do and don't want to do stock sales. So um, let's say there's a medical uh, industry client and they have insurance contracts and you know patient patient records and they want it they want to have a a stock sale for that reason but they want the tax treatment of an asset sale there's ways to do that with you know 338 h10 elections or 336 e elections so that's a way that's something that people don't realize sometimes um at the table so i think they should definitely know that um especially in certain industries that that's an option and you know it's also something that could change the purchase price obviously everything's based off the taxes that you're going to pay um, for each party but that's something that people need to realize is an option on the table got it um is there anything that companies can do maybe at formation as they're just starting out uh to help prep their company for acquisition yeah, in the future? So, so even um you know a lot of guys will just want to do an llc right off the bat and just kind of get it going well a c-corp um has one big benefit to it if you do it right is the 1202 uh, exclusion the qualified small business stock exclusion you can exclude up to 10 million of your gain upon sale as long as you hold it for five years so 
you know, if you're building something that you have really have a big vision on it and it's a five plus year vision um, before you exit and you're thinking we're going to be in the eight figure, nine figure um, sale, then C Corp off the bat, make sure you have prop, proper documentation on it. There's a couple um, things you need to be aware of the $50 million uh, value when you get the stock, which you should be good if it's a startup and you're, you're starting from nothing. Um, certain industries don't qualify, but those are mostly professional services, but you know, not your normal tech startup. So you're usually good on that. And C-Corp kind of, it's really not that bad these days with the 21% um, tax rate. And But I mean, they're going to lose money for the most part. Most startups will lose money for at least the first three, five years. Um, but, you know, it also goes a long way with investors' um, credibility. that They want to invest in a C-Corp. So, so everybody should understand qualified small business stock, um, you can – you can exclude up to $10 million of your gain if you meet the requirements. And they're really not that um, difficult of requirements to meet. So so take a look at that. And there's some planning opportunities around that. Um, I had a client who is sitting on qualified small business stock, his startup, and it's in the $30 million range of you know what, what his cut it's going to be. So the max is $10 million that you can exclude. Well, if you gift part of your stock to, you know, your kids, your, your kids trust that $10 million per is per taxpayer. So you can give 10 to one, one of your kids trust, give 10 to one of your other kids trust, you know, you still need to look at the gift taxes, but you know, there's higher limits on those now. So basically you and your wife can give $22 million in your lifetime tax free. So if you do that, then you're looking at $30 million of a capital gain that you're not paying tax on. So Definitely be aware of that stuff. Um, 1202 is a, I mean, it's a great um, code section for UC Corp guys. So look into it. Talk to your lawyers and accountants about it. So um, don't leave it. Don't leave that stone unturned. That's a big one. So do you typically recommend companies structuring as LLCs or C Corps? It depends. Hmm. It really does. I mean, for the startup guys, like tech startups, the C Corps just makes sense. Um, LLCs, it's nice to get the losses out to the investors early. Um, but a lot of times those are passive losses anyway they can't use. And from a tax standpoint, it's a lot harder when you have 50 K ones to kick out and you're giving new ownership during the year. And we have, you know, figure out the percentages based off different dates. C Corp's a lot cleaner, um, a lot less work on my end. So <laughs> I like the C Corp for that reason, but LLCs do have, um, do have a place, but go back to that 1202 exclusion. And that's something that, um, is going to outweigh getting investors their losses early on. One question I forgot to ask when we're talking about uh, asset purchases is uh, what's the tax effect of uh, asset allocation in an asset purchase agreement? Yeah, I think, you know, we kind of talked about that before with um, Goodwill versus the furniture and fixtures. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, depending on how you allocate it, it could be capital gains, ordinary income, and that's, that could be the difference of, you know, 17% or so. So, um, you know, most of it's going to be goodwill, capital gains. Um, even the even the hard assets are um, sometimes will be a mix of capital gains and ordinary income. But yeah, I mean, you want to, from the buyer's perspective, you want it all to be uh, furniture and fixtures. You could write it off that year, take Section 179 or bonus depreciation, and you got this huge deduction that you can now use going forward if it's an NOL or, or use it currently. So, um, you know, there, there's a big... 
there's a big difference on how you allocate it and, and um, those form 85 94s that you need to that you need to kind of share with each other um, I'd say try to get those try to get a draft of those in you know when you're signing uh, the the, uh, the deals get a draft on it I mean some things are going to change um, depending on the final numbers but definitely get an idea of what those look like so so you can kind of get that to your your accountant and that'll help with your tax projection knowing what you're what you're netting at the end of the day so it makes a difference but it's really just capital gain versus ordinary income to be honest with you cool which we want all capital gains that's the goal uh, david this has been great are there any last pieces of advice that you want to leave our audience with i would say bring your cpa in um as early as possible um it's not going to cost you an arm and a leg it might only be a few grand um, but it could swing the meter you know millions of dollars so there's no reason not to um bring us in so be smart bring your cpa in thank you david this has been great all right man thanks for having me